0: Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and moved closer toward the gospel by this week's message. So five weeks ago we began a pilgrimage through the salvation story and then today we come finally to a crossroads. We began by exploring how God created. He created everything good. He created us in his image. And then we became terribly lost. That's to condense four weeks. So then God's where are you to Adam and Eve in the garden begins echoing throughout the pages of the rest of the story of the Old Testament. Where are you? Why are you hiding? Why are you ashamed? And finally, one of the essential questions of the Bible rises to the surface, and it's this. Is there any hope that God's lost children can be found? Now, before the Old Testament closes the prophets kindle a little bit of a hope. Now, the Old Testament closes without an answer, without a satisfying conclusion to the question. But the prophets had kindled this little hope in Isaiah 58, 9. You will cry for help and God will say, here I am. The prophets begin talking about how maybe God himself will come and be the answer to this question. And that's exactly what happens as the New Testament opens. It bursts like like a firework that illumines a new path and a new answer to this question. We discover in the New Testament the resolution to this story, to this question of will we ever be found? The answer isn't going to come from us managing to be found by God. It's actually going to come from God being found as one of us. And that's the incarnation, Isaiah 58, coming to life. In the end, we are found, but we are finally found in him, in Christ. So I want to frame this week's pilgrimage by shamelessly borrowing from James Um, His sermon two weeks ago had this great illustration, this illustration of a soundtrack that has been sticking with me, playing in my mind. So the idea was that we all have a soundtrack that plays kind of in the background, usually in the heart, that informs the way we experience life. So he brought up this Jurassic Park example you know, it did, this example, I loved it. It did painfully remind me, I have to share, of a seventh grade band audition. I was auditioning for the trumpet to see which chair I'd be in. And I'm telling you, at home when I practiced, I was practicing in the mirror in my bathroom downstairs and I was just nailing that song on the trumpet. It was so beautiful. And then I get in front of the band director and I'm so nervous and it just turns into this, like, just slobbery series of brassy squawks. And I get, <laughs> I get last chair. And I think that was the end of my trumpet career. It was supposed to be the Jurassic Park theme song. Anyhow, the point is this. James asks us to imagine that if the, that scene, if you've seen the movies where the, the dinosaurs are first glimpsed, and you hear that, na 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 imagine if that was replaced by the dreadful thumping of jaws. Like, <clears throat> how would it change how you experience that scene? The music, the music of our hearts changes how we experience the ups and the downs of life. In 2007, I spent several months in Calcutta, India, serving at a place called Nabujiban. It was the Mother Teresa home for severely handicapped men and boys. My experiences there were really beautiful and really devastating. So much of the Indian culture, the, the people and the food and the color, was really beautiful. But the ministry in and around Nabujiban was also really difficult, really emotionally hard. As I was riding through the taxi in the slums especially, not all of it was slums, but when we went through the slums, the smell of sewage, the smell of burning trash would fill my nostrils and then at almost every stop, children who had clearly been orphaned and often they were sick or disfigured, they would knock on the car window and they would beg for food. Then outside of Naboojuban, I saw several people apparently dropped off on the curb to be taken in or to die and inside the home, overworked nuns and employees did their very best to dress and feed and clean and wipe and generally care for too many men and boys who had been abandoned by family and were incapable of caring for themselves. And the essential question that I lived through as I was there in this experience was, really, is there any hope? Is, the, is there any hope for this devastation? So I fought for hope, and in some days I feel like I, I lost, and in some days I feel like I found it. And when I did find it, I usually came by way of my morning ritual. So every morning, as I'd bump along in the taxi, I'd watch Calcutta wake up, you know, I'd watch the crisp morning dawn, and people come out and begin to get ready for the day. And as I surveyed the city, I'd put my headphones on, and I'd blast a song called You Are Not Alone by um, you're Not Alone by an early 2000s California band called Seosin. And whatever else the song said, the chorus just said it over and over, it screamed it over and over again, you are not alone, you're not alone, you're not alone. And I listened to it and I played it and I prayed it thousands of times during those two months. I listened to it this week a lot as I was thinking about it and preparing the sermon. Now I don't know if I was playing that soundtrack for, for me or for the people of Kolkata or for the boys of Nabujiban. I think the answer is D, all of the above. But I tell you that, the story, that story because I basically it's, it's really the only thing I want to say to you this morning. Because of the incarnation of Jesus, you are not alone. The incarnation, if it were a song or a soundtrack, it would scream this truth to you. It would whisper this truth to you. It would sing this truth to you, to all of humanity. In the beauty and in the devastation of life, you are not alone. That's what the incarnation tells us. So if you're following along in Backyard Pilgrim or in week five... And the question again, where was Jesus found for us? Because he was found for us. In the answer, we're going to see three answers. He was found in the womb. He was found in Nazareth. And he was found as a teenager. So first, he was found in the womb. You know, John's gospel begins with a recreation story. In the beginning, just like Genesis, in the beginning. And what happened? The word was with God, and the word was God, and the word what? The word became and... So God didn't FedEx-inspired Scripture to us from the distant safety of heaven. He didn't deliver a thumb drive full of data about himself, where we might find him and plot our way back. He took on flesh. He came to Mary's womb. And the great here I am of Isaiah, the promised coming of God, happens. Mary receives the word of God and conceives. And as with Genesis, so now. God is patiently, silently present once again. The word became flesh in and through Mary's womb. Now, many of you, some of you have had babies yourself or you've been present for the process, but if you haven't, I'll put it this way. In one episode of, who's seen the children's show Bluey? Most of you who have kids have. If not, you might actually enjoy just watching it. It's hilarious. Um, In one episode, Bluey says to his dad, Dad, I'm bored. And the dad, not quite hearing him right, says, I know you were born, kid. I was there. And then he gets this distant look in his eye, and he says under his breath, it was a real eye-opener. <laughs> because the birthing of a child is, is a, um, it's a magical and miraculous and beautiful process. It's also an intensely physical, intense, painful process for the mother and the child. Where was Jesus found for us? He was found in the womb. I don't often quote Max Lucado, but when I do, I mean it. He says, In Christ, God came near. In Christ, God stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother's womb. Mary changed God's diaper, watched him learn to walk. He played in the streets with the neighbor's children. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. It could have been that his knees were bony. He was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak, he grew weary. He got colds. He got cold. He got hurt. He got tired and his head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light is, while it can seem irreverent, it's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much, it's much easier, he says, to keep the humanity out of the incarnation, to clean the manure from around the manger. There's something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant and packaged and predictable. Says, don't do it. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and the muck of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. So, if, like James shared a few weeks ago, one of the soundtracks of his life playing in the background was that when he makes a mistake or he fails or he's aware of his own brokenness, God wants distance. That's the soundtrack that plays, and he needed this better soundtrack of the parable of the prodigal son. Well, if if the soundtrack of your life is that when you fail. Or you realize you're broken or where you're ashamed, God wants distance from you, dwell on the womb of Mary. How humbly, how patiently, how absolutely committed God is that He would not only find us, but He would be found as one of us. Because in Adam, we hide, we ignore, we ignore God's where are you, we run the other way, but in Christ, we're found as children. The incarnation happened, so you're not alone. So where else was Jesus found for us? He was found for us in Mary's womb, and he was found for us as a teenager. Have You ever dwelt on the fact that Jesus was a teenager? Luke 2, he went down to Nazareth and with them and with his parents, and he was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And then we read that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. You know, it's one thing to think of baby Jesus swaddled up, cute and cuddly in the manger on Christmas time and we love him and it's adorable. But what was it like for Jesus to grow as one of us slowly, sometimes awkwardly, into the teenage years and then on into adulthood? You know, like all teenagers, Jesus would have felt sexual attraction. He would have slowly grown a mustache. He would have spent hours studying when he would have preferred to be with his friends. Maybe, says Father Canless. Jesus got third place in the village race and felt embarrassed about it. Maybe he wasn't the best carpenter in Galilee. Maybe he didn't like broccoli or some of the other vegetables that his parents wanted him to eat. And I think dwelling on the, on the, on the teenage humanity of Jesus makes this point especially clear. Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews 2. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way, through the womb, a teenager, <laughs> In or, I mean, it doesn't, that was me, parentheses. <laughs> Fully human in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Elsewhere, Hebrews puts it this way. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be us. <clears throat> Henry Nouwen has given voice to what so many of us know. If you've been in uh, any sort of really painful situation in life, You know often that nothing really comforts you except for the presence of loved ones. He says, My moments of greatest comfort have come when someone has said to me, I cannot take away your pain, but I can promise that I will not leave you alone. The incarnation is God saying this very thing to you and I and to the world. I can't take away all of your pain yet, and don't we know it? (laughs) But I am not going to leave you alone. I will not leave you alone you dwelt on the humanity of Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us, who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus, fully God, fully man, one person, two natures. You know, this was such a scandal to the early church, reckoning with the, the humanity of Jesus, that it really had to work this out. And a lot of heresies popped up and arose, proposing different ways of thinking about who Jesus was. So, docetism, which means, comes from the Greek do, "dokeo," which means to seem. Jesus only seemed to be human, but wasn't actually. God couldn't really be human. Gnosticism. Well, we know that all physical matter is evil, so God couldn't become physical matter. That, that would be, that'd be bad. Apollinarianism. Jesus um, was a kind of hybrid. Think of, think of a pie, and then you cut it in half. And this part of the pie is humanity, and this part of the pie is his divinity, and you can sort of separate him out. He's half and half. Well, all of those are heresies. And over against them, the early church had these very simple Christological guardrails. Fully God, fully man. Now, since I lost some of you by quoting Max Lucado, I'll now quote the ancient Athanasian Creed to comfort you. But I'll lose the other half of you, maybe. But here's how the Creed puts it. We believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance with the Father begotten before the worlds, and man, of the substance of his mother, born into the world, perfect God and perfect man, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who, although he be God and man, yet he is not two but one Christ, one, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of manhood into God." So you could dwell on that for the rest of the day or week or year. The point is this, God took on human flesh, pimples and all, became a teenager. How far would God go to be found as one of us? He'd go all the way to middle school, dare I say. The incarnation happened, so you are not, you're not alone. He knows what it's like to be you. So lastly, where was Jesus found as one of us? We've said he's been found in the womb, he's been found as a teenager, and finally he was found in Nazareth. You know, when John finds out that the Messiah, in John 1, sorry, Nathaniel hears that the Messiah comes from Nazareth, and what does he say? Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And it's a fair question, because Nazareth was a, you know, far from impressive, 500 to a thousand people, backwater little village. What does it communicate to us that the Messiah came through Nazareth? Well, I think at least two things. It communicates to us that Jesus, the Messiah, he's he's incarnate among the humble. He's with the humble, and he's in the ordinary. So first, the humble. Like I said, Nazareth, it's like it's an unsightly little blip on the radar of first century Palestine. It's a tiny place. It's a dirty place. It's a poor, uneducated, nowhere kind of place. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And the answer is no. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Not in terms of worldly thinking. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says this. Most of us, had we designed the plan, we would have made great pomp and circumstance out of the incarnation. We'd probably have him arrive in Rome, to be honest. But the fact that his birth was like any other common birth says a lot about the great lengths God goes to in order to identify with the most humble people of the world. God may be the God of the universe, but he is no elitist. It's been well said that some of us can't seem to find God because we don't look low enough. This goes for the Nazareth's in us and the Nazareth's around us. What do I mean? Well, in us, don't we fear going to some of the places that are dirty and shameful, forgotten, places of shame or regret or failure? And we we think that God runs from such places, but friends, he is born into such places. This is where he loves to come and greet us with his grace. Nazareth. And around us, we often think we're going to find God in places of power, but uh, he is among the poor. He's in places like Nazareth, like Kolkata, like Mean Street Ministries on West Colfax Avenue. He identifies with the lowly because he was lowly. And as we grieve over the violence in the Middle East over these weeks, it's heartbreaking. We also remember that Jesus, the incarnate God, bled into that same ground. He knows what it is to suffer unjustly. He, too, was caught up in the violence of a violent world. So he's among the humble and the hurting and the suffering because he lived in humility, and he hurt, and he suffered. Second, Nazareth, as his hometown, communicates that he's found in the ordinary, not just with the humble, but in the ordinary, ordinary of life. So he's born, he's a baby, he becomes a teenager, and then what? Well, we don't know. It's like the Dark Ages, we just just don't know you know, suddenly he's 30 and he's doing public ministry. What happened between his puberty and his public ministry? Well, it's safe to assume he did what everyone else did. He, he grew up, you know, he developed his trade. He spent time with friends. He read books. He, he occasionally watched a sunset or celebrated a birthday. He went to his favorite tree to, to nap under it on a Sunday afternoon. He went to the synagogue and prayed, you know, in modern language. He, he went to his favorite coffee shops and he hung out with friends, you know, he spent time just doing what any of us do, living life. He navigated the ordinary challenges of growing up. Now, the question is, was this a waste of time? Was it like all a waste of time until he finally got going with public ministry? No, Jesus was delighting in being God's son in down-to-earth ways, and that's exactly what he was meant to be doing. Why? It's so important that we insist on Jesus' Entering into the full humanity, including the ordinary life. Because as Gregory put it in the fourth century, the unassumed is not healed. What does that mean? It means that what has not been taken on by Jesus has not been redeemed by Jesus. Jesus took on and assumed our humanity because his mission, it was not just his passion, his death on the cross. His mission was to redeem all of life, ordinary life, to reclaim it and turn it back towards God. And in doing so, he sanctified the ordinary. Matt's wife, Julie, um, Matt, who wrote Backyard Pilgrim, his wife, Julie Canless is a theologian. She put it this way in her book called Theology of the Ordinary. She says, the sun inhabited all human existence to transform it. This is an extraordinary benediction upon our ordinary lives. Where was God found for us? Making himself, you know, a, making himself a decent lunch and cleaning up the dishes afterwards. You know, surely he also felt that small ache in his lower back from bending over doing the ancient Near East equivalent of whatever, like, the kitchen sink was as you're washing the dishes and your back is hurting. Like, Jesus knew the little nuances of ordinary life. It's an extraordinary benediction upon our ordinary lives. And this sweet little book, Every Moment Holy, takes this idea I've just talked about, the ordinary, and, and how it's sacred, and it, and it runs with it in the form of liturgy. I want to share for, with you a little bit of the liturgy from, uh, it's called a liturgy for those who have not done great things for God. And it gets at this idea that God is in the ordinary. How many times have I been told, O Christ, by well-meaning people like me, that it is my destiny and my charge to go out into the world and do great things for God? How many times in response have I prayed earnestly asking that you would bring such things to pass, that you might use me mightily for the work of your kingdom. And how many times then have I waited expectantly and waited and waited for that great thing, whatever it might be, to be made obvious? How many times have I felt then the gradually settling weight of disillusionment, of disappointment and confusion, when no great thing materialized? when no life-changing opportunity suddenly arrived at my doorstep, when no such moment of call or clarity was ever manifest at all. In the confused afterglow of these receding anticipations, I am always faced again with the unglamorous reality of my own life. I am faced again with the same litany of tired temptations towing their attendant shames. And in such times I am left, O oh Lord, wondering if I have somehow missed your call completely, and whether I might just as well abandon this pilgrim path entirely, for I fear that you must see me as I see myself, unfit, for any special service to you or to your people or to this world. O child of God, listen well and be comforted. He has never judged you unfit for any service. He has called you to, For it is in Christ's righteousness that he has clothed you, and his measure of greatness has never been your own. If you would pray to do great things for God, then you must pray such prayers without regard for how they should be answered. And here's getting to the point I'm trying to make now with ordinary sacred life. Pray these prayers knowing that in his true and holy reckoning, such greatness will most often be expressed in a long practice of humility and sacrificial servanthood and not in any pursuit promising a rise to power or position or prestige. His might is most often displayed as the grace that cradles and transcends our brokenness and poverty of spirit. And so be invested, child, in simple obedience to your king, and in long faithfulness to his call. Shepherd daily those gifts and tasks and relationships, those ordinary things he has entrusted to you, regardless of outcomes and experiences." He concludes this way, be content then in the station he has appointed to you in this season and yet be ever ready to move at the impulse of his love. Tend well those things that are before you, however humble they be and he will lead you in time to other good works, whether big or small is of no matter. He attaches no numbers to your service. It is your heart and faithfulness he appraises. Do you hear in that the invitation to an ordinary life? to a simple, ordinary, sacred life. So what have we said, in Eden we hid and God asked, where are you? And we ran in shame and the question was, would we ever be found? And God promised in the prophets that he would find us and in the end he didn't only find us, he was found as one of us. And now because of the incarnation and the sending of the spirit, the words of Isaiah ring true. You will cry for help and God will say, here I am. And so, in the beauty and in the devastation of life, in the tender years of your childhood, in the stretching teenage years, and into ordinary life beyond, Jesus was found as one of us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And therefore, you are not alone. And that can be the soundtrack that accompanies you this week. No matter what you're walking out of here into, whether great things for God or humble things like laundry and dishes and whatever else it is you're putting your work to, you're beloved because you're not alone and you're found in him. And I pray that would be the soundtrack that you live to this week. Father, I pray for any who are struggling with loneliness, especially that the incarnation would be a reminder of how far you would go to identify as one of us, to be with us, and now by your spirit, our presence still with us. Would you walk with us from here into our weeks and remind us of your, your presence and your love every step of the way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.